Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for coming back, for tuning in once again. Hundredth episode. Can you believe it? I sure can. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk with you again. You know, interesting thing that happened. Um, I'm a big history buff, as you all know. And uh, as a way of commemorating the hundredth anniversary of the Spanish flu, I decided to get influenza this this past uh, week and uh, yeah it was a complete nightmare and uh, I was pretty much out of commission for two weeks so sorry about missing a couple episodes there but um, I'm sure we're gonna make it up with my glorious guests on the line today um, let's see what do I want to say about counterpunch well I want to say that counterpunch is I think probably the most critical publication that we have on the left in the United States and certainly beyond the borders of the United States because in many ways counterpunch really is one of the only platforms that exists to provide critical analysis from the left, but provide a kind of platform where there will be competing views, where there will be fighting, where there will be, you know, punches to the proverbial kidneys and so forth. And uh, I really love that. And I love every issue, every issue that comes in the mail of the magazine. I love being able to flip back through them weeks, months uh, later. And uh, frankly, how many publications are there that are still doing that? Uh, and if you value things like that, as I do, print publications like vinyl records and other anachronisms that we enjoy, both ironically and not, uh, consider getting a subscription to Counterpunch. It's a great way to support the the, um, the publication, to support the website, and to support the great work that Jeff, Josh, and Becky and the entire Counterpunch team do. Uh, pick up the phone and call Becky. Talk to her. Annoy her. Uh, send an email to Jeff. He loves that. Uh, let's see. What other ways can you support Counterpunch? You can also get on the Facebook page and all those other things. So please do consider that. Uh, now, that being said, it is the 100th episode, and so I decided let's do... Let's Let's give the audience what they've always wanted, the equivalent of a clip show. And so I said, let's get Jeffrey Sinclair and Joshua Frank on the podcast. Jeff Sinclair, editor of Counterpunch, Joshua Frank, what do you call yourself, managing editor, something along those lines. Uh, I have Jeff and Josh on the line. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff because this is how we celebrate ourselves in the words of Walt Whitman. So uh, Jeff Sinclair, Joshua Frank, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Eric. Thanks Good for back, having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Eric. Thank you for coming uh, on, and thank and uh, yeah, and thank you for all the work that you do, including oblique threats that you make uh, and various other statements. Um, so I am very excited to talk to you guys, and I'm really excited to find out just how good of an internet connection you both have in your World War III bunkers, from which I assume you're broadcasting today. Uh, so question number one, Jeff, how deep is your World War III bunker? Well, I'm down in the sub-basement of our house here in Oregon City right now. There's, I think, about two inches of water down here with uh, me and the dog. And, and, and Josh, what about you and uh, well, I don't think he was calling her a hooker, but um, I am in, in my outpost here in uh, Southern California watching the coastline as far, you know, from a mile away. So, uh, you know, not really much of a bunker. We don't have basements down here, but um, I feel semi-safe nonetheless. 
Well, I guess the the natural follow up question is: Did you guys buy your storable foods from Alex Jones? <laughs> I do have some supplements. He does great omega threes. I hear that Josh uses those supplements in the form of suppositories. Jeff, is that true? <laughs> I I've been you know I've been sworn to secrecy on that, Eric. You know, maybe it, people pay extra for the podcast. You know, we'll have a. Uh, <laughs> That thing that Zuckerberg was talking about, pay extra for ad-free Facebook. Well, Counterpunch is... Supplement special. Counterpunch is the type of publication that would produce a podcast that references suppositories in the first three (laughs) minutes. So welcome back to the show, everybody. And um, so I guess we'll begin with the news of the day. I already mentioned World War III, so we kind of got that out of the way. Uh, So I guess we should probably start with the unbelievably off-the-wall and insane things that the Degenerate-in-Chief is saying on Twitter today. So, um, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about what Trump said on Twitter today? We're recording here on Wednesday, April something or other, 11th. Uh, So Trump said some pretty insane shit, Jeff. What did he say, and how insane is it, and are you worried? You know, the insanity uh, odometer... (laughs) On my computer is broke a long time ago, but uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty insane even for Trump to sort of you know wake up, you know, bragging about uh, uh, how smart his missiles are, how 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 polished and shiny they were, uh, you know, taunting the Russians that they were going to come swooping right past the missile defense system, you know how big the craters are going to be. Um, it was fantastic shit. Now, I think that, because remember, Trump used to just, you know, get under Obama's skin by, by saying, oh, you know, Obama telegraphs all of his punches. I would never do that, you know. I, don't, I, I would never attack Syria, but if I did, I would do it, you know, quietly and secretly and, you know, sneak up and, you know, tag him from behind. Um, so now, you know, we've got all this bombast. It's it's like the uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or something, you know, it's the greatest buildup ever. Um, and I just think it would be great and certainly wise for him to go through all this bluster and, and then, uh, you know, uh, not launch a single cruise missile. I mean, which is, I think, the only rational thing to do. But... Uh, uh, I don't think it's going to turn out that way. But, you know, there's in in reading it and in following the way that this is all happened, I I can't help but feel like this is Trump basically making, you know, world war kind of threats because of something somebody said on Fox and Friends that set him off. I mean, well, they don't have to be on Fox and Friends because all of those people are now, you know, in the White House. Right. I mean, he's got Bolton's, you know, in one ear. Lou Dobbs is on speakerphone, um, you know, that, that creepy, you know, Stephen Miller is sort of, you know, there in the corner, like uh, Max Schreck and, and uh, Nosferatu. Um, it's wild. I mean, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, if you look, I wish there was like a, a lexographer who could, you know, really dig into these Trump tweets, because a lot of them ha- do have a different syntax. And I... I just wonder if, you know, sometimes, you know, like Stephen Miller gets a hold of the, the Android and starts typing, typing the shit out. Josh, I was under the impression that Stephen Miller is an Android. 
go. <laughs> I am under the same impression. I actually was just looking here at Trump's Twitter feed and uh, his last two tweets, of course, the one with the Republican congressional leadership, and they're all with their thumbs up their ass, but also just up. And then also he's promoting the Sean Hannity show at 9, 9 p.m., which is supposed to be a huge show, just huge. So that's, you know, th this is the important stuff going on today. Um, you know, meanwhile, Trump is working to eviscerate welfare. Uh, you know, they're, they're expanding, uh, you know, offshore drilling. We have some very destroying the national parks. You know, we have some very serious shit going on. But of course, we're, we're caught up and warped by the, the mind of Trump and his, his Twitter obsession. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous, too, for us, right, that we are so obsessed with the this uh, the day to day antics of Trump, but meanwhile the machinery continues to grind, and we're seeing some horrific things on the ground here in the states and obviously across the globe. Well, that's right, and um, there's one thing about uh, the climate. Uh, that we're kind of living through right now that really doesn't sit so well with me. And that's this, 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 I, I don't know, what do you call it? A meme or, or whatever that we're literally on the precipice of World War Three. Because to my mind, I, and you know, Jeff, at one point when you were on this show uh, many episodes ago, you mentioned uh, Alex Coburn and, and, and his talking about conspiracy theory, and in particular what stuck out in my mind was his argument that the abandonment of Marxism and Marxist analysis really kind of opens this this space for this sort of, uh, if not conspiracy thinking, then sort of this uh, sky is falling, apocalypse around the corner kind of thinking. And I hate to say it, but I see so much of that in what's going on today, where People are talking as if a group of Russian oligarch capitalists and a group of American oligarch capitalists are going to destroy the planet in order to destroy each other for what? Because uh, they don't like each other? I mean, this. It, 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 I'm, I, I, I hate to downplay something so serious, but it strikes me as thoroughly irrational to instantly assume that these people are going to incinerate each other. It is. I mean, and, you know, I guess they could be sort of, you know, pushed into it, you know, um, I and mean, they are wagging their nuclear weapons at each other again. I mean, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've never had all that much faith in the American left as any kind of political force. Uh, but that has eroded even even further because they do seem completely irrational to me. Um, and just not in the in the real game that matters. Um, on the other hand, we are at a point where I think our leaders are <laughs> almost as irrational as as some of the movements. And you know, like in through the Cold War, the the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, you know, was abided by. You know. Um, even in some of the most fraught hours of the Cold War. But, uh, you know, there are, there are signs that, that uh, that's maybe beginning to crack a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel that uh, it is a, a very, very fraught hour, uh, mainly because 
I, I don't think there is, dis despite the trademarking and the name resistance, I don't see one. I don't see a real resistance to what's going on. And uh, in, in the... In that kind of environment, you know, a, a lot of strange characters are are running wild. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. We, look, we we nobody nobody wants a mineshaft gap. Nobody wants <laughs> you know uh, you know to 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 blunder our way into a world war. But you know, this has been brought up to me a number of times, Josh, and I've kind of fought it out with people on Facebook and so forth over this narrative about, you know, being on the precipice of world war. And I'm not suggesting that it's not something to be concerned about. I think any nuclear threats are to be taken very seriously. And obviously, I think that with somebody like Trump uh, in office, it's all the more serious. At the same time, you know, I get people telling me, well, <laughs> what, have you never studied World War One and how we just, you know, people just sleepwalked into that war? And again, I find myself saying, but you do really realize that it every circumstance was totally different leading up to World War One, where you actually had competing imperial powers. You had multiple empires on the verge of collapse. The Ottoman, the Russian, the Austro-Hungarian were all on the verge of collapse. You had political ferment around the world for, you know, radical revolutionary change. There were so many things that were happening that kind of, you know, that confluence of developments, I think, was, you know, in, in, in some sense, kind of the pressure cooker that allowed World War I to happen in the way that it did. And I don't see any of those type of circumstances here today where, if anything, you have, you know, at best competing camps of capitalists that are more or less benefiting from each other in a kind of symbiotic relationship. I mean, I suppose one could argue that the Russians and the Americans fight it out for weapons contracts, but I don't think that either one of them is going hungry. So, Josh, I mean, am I wrong here or are people just badly misreading history? in the current moment? Well, I think that we live in a state of, of anxiety because of this constant, you know, perceived threat of World War III. But honestly, as, as we well know, we've been at perpetual war for, what, last 50 years in some form or another, and it's escalated and it's de-escalated and it's been covert, it's been overt. Um, and especially since 9-11, we've been you know, very active in the Middle East and many countries, uh, and it's been a complete and utter failure in all in all cases. Uh, so this is really just an extension of that, not something that I would say is is a new thing. And and same with what goes for Russia. I mean, it's not like this is the first time Russia's been involved in a country that had competing interests with the U.S. So this is not a new thing. That what what is new perhaps, is the escalation of rhetoric. Um, and that has a lot to do with, I think, social media and Twitter and the rest of it more so than anything else, because what I think it's exposed to the fractures, not only of, of course, the, <laughs> in, the in the mind of Trump, um, but also the fractures on the left. And I think those fractures have always been there. Um, I think, but now they're, they're being completely exposed in a, in a new way that they haven't before. And I think a lot of people on the left, and I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly that we don't really have a left, uh, not a uni united one, that's for sure. Um, and I think now we're, we're seeing that because what uh, we've lost is a class analysis of, of the politics, for instance, in Syria and elsewhere. And, and what what's filled the void is this got you rhetoric. Um, and meanwhile, Palestinians are being killed, Syrians are being killed. Um, and our environment's being destroyed, and the left is sitting on its hands, or worse, 
typing away, arguing with each other, um, and not organizing uh, against the capitalist elite of, around the world. And, and of course, Putin is one of them, and of course, Trump is one of them, and Assad is one of them. And there's no united front against that. Instead, it's this this really petty back and forth that accomplishes nothing other than you know points on your little scorecard. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But can I ask you just to elaborate a little bit on when you say fractures in the left, what exactly do you mean? Are you talking about, you know, sort of the split into different competing camps over an issue like Syria? Or are you talking something more, say, endemic on the left? Um, I mean, I think Syria is an example of it. Um, I think that there's a lot of nuance in Syria, but if you were to look at different camps on the left, you would see one side versus another side and you'd lose this sort of gray area, which it's it's very it's very muddy. Um, and obviously the the situation in Syria is a lot different than it was in 2011 when, when the uprising occurred to where it is now. Um, and so there's no clear cut sort of agenda. Uh, on the left, except to, to point out that the other side is wrong. Um, and so I think counterpunch, uh, we sort of land in the middle and say, look, it, it, it's, it's, it's awful. It's asymmetrical to be sure, but it's awful and there's no easy answers. Um, so I think that's an example of it. I don't think, I think there's many examples. Um, and I think an, another example is how the left is dealing with Trump um, and, and the Russia issue. Uh, I think that the left is a little bit naive as to how damaging Trump is right now. Um, I think, you know, we fall into this mindset that MSNBC and if we if we're critical of Trump, all of a sudden we are, you know, Democrats that are are saying that the world's, you know, the, the, the sky is falling. But there's really concrete things that have been carrying over from the previous administration that are continuing and and just because we're opposing Trump now doesn't mean, for instance, that we somehow supported Hillary or that we weren't opposing Obama's wars. I mean, and that's when we get into this tit for tat. Um, I think when I think, as you know, and we talked about it, a lot of people would rather say, oh, well, the left, you guys, where were you when Obama was doing this? Well, I can tell you where Counterpunch was. We were on the front lines opposing it and we're on the front lines now. So we're, we're right where we always have been. And I wish that the left would have been there as well. Yeah, it's an incredibly insulting thing, and I've heard it multiple times, and I'm like, really? I, since I became politically active and aware around 2002, 2003, in the beginning of the Iraq war, I've been doing nothing but opposing, you know, the empire in every way that I possibly can. And so then, you know, fast forward 15, 16 years, and the mere mention of, uh, you know, Russiagate and uh, and Trump, and that all of a sudden, nope, you never did anything. You're a Democrat shill. You're a Hillary shill. Why are you even talking? Shut up. I hate you. You know what I mean? And and it's like that literally becomes the kind of rhetoric you encounter on the left. And it's like, really? So we're just going to ignore all the evidence. We're going to ignore all of these different things. All I mean, the hundreds of different threads of this story of this investigation, which is really becoming one of the big stories of, of the last one, two, three generations. And somehow certain elements of the left are like, nope, ignore it all. Focus only on Obama or neoliberalism or what, you know, fill in the blank that uh, it's just so dumb right jeff yeah <laughs> i don't know what they want us to focus on actually um because it is it is a kind of uh it's a kind of mirage um and it's incredibly frustrating for me i want i'm a journalist you know as well as an activist and i'm really interested in what you know what happened and you know we've had close encounters with 
you know, Russia, Russia gate, you know, um, come back, Alice Donovan. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested. And, and look, you know, we we're fighting the power that is and, you know, the power that always has been. I mean, we Josh and I wrote a, a one of the most hostile books ever. You know, we edited it and half wrote it. Uh, one of the most hostile books ever written on Obama um, called Hopeless. Um, and took a lot of shit for that. Uh, you know, we wrote, Coburn and I wrote a hostile biography of, of Al Gore. You know, you fight the power that is, it seems to me. And a lot of, I call it the Sputnik left, um, they're still fighting Obama. I mean, <laughs> he's been gone for, you know, a year and a half now. Um, and uh, really, you know, the same system uh, is running the show uh, with, different figureheads, some more ludicrous than others. Um, but, you know, and, and you fight them the way that you can. Um, and, you know, I just, actually, I just finished reading uh, David Korn and Isakoff's book, Russiagate, um, which is interesting for quite a few reasons. Um, namely that you can, it's very easy to detect which, which paragraphs and sentences were, uh, were written by Isakoff and which ones were written by Korn. Um, I mean, it, it lay, there's nothing sort of new new in it, but it, it does lay out a timeline, which is, uh, I think, fairly compelling. Um, I think I'm not convinced that uh, you know that that the Russians swayed the election, but. You know, they certainly had their hands uh, in a lot of different pies. Let's put it that way. And we ought to, we should feel free, I think, as journalists and you know, left-wing journalists, to to follow those trails where they lead and try and understand the significance of them. But Jeff, that makes you a neo-McCarthyite Russophobe. I know it does. <laughs> <laughs> and I just. Uh, we were talking about this, the whole, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, which, you know, it's just, it's, it's all over the place, all over Twitter, all over Facebook, all over, you know, unsolicited submissions to counterpunch. But, you know, it's like two seconds after the reports of a chemical weapons attack in, uh, in Duma, oh, it's a false flag. How could anyone possibly know? I mean, did they even know there was really a chemical weapons attack? You know, no one knew, but the but the the narratives were already floating. The positions had already been taken, um, and I, I think there was a piece in uh, what is it, World Socialist, uh, either today or yesterday, that it was a CIA operation. How could they know? Um, and it's just uh, incredi incredibly knee jerk. I, I don't see what how that could possibly that kind of uh, you know entrenched thinking thinking maybe putting it uh, a little bit grandly um, serves anything. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And uh, Josh, I want to get your take on what Jeff just brought up in a second because you know to my mind. I think that there is certainly a valid response to have, you know, within a day or two. And that's simply to say, no matter what happened, this cannot be allowed to be a pretext for U.S. military engagement, direct military involvement. That's a fairly simple, fairly straightforward and principled position to take. I don't know what happened. I don't know if Assad used chemical weapons.
weapons or the rebels use chemical weapons or, you know, a third party bought them on the black market and who knows what happened. But I do know that whatever did happen, it shouldn't be used as a pretext for more U.S. bombs or more Russian bombs or whatever you want to say. That's a fairly simple position to take. But that's, I, I think, and Jeff, I think is right. That's not what you really see so much in the Twitterverse and the Facebook, you know, blogosphere world where it's like, nope, never happened or yes, absolutely happened. And you don't fucking know. Well, that's right. And I think as, as editors and journalists um, on the left, especially, uh, I think our job is to question the narrative, the popular narrative of all powers, right? So we should be questioning the U.S.'s narrative. We should be questioning Russia's. We should be questioning Assad. Sometimes they're not the same. Um, and, and picking the holes in, of each, right? We, we don't know the answer. We weren't on the ground we, in this instance, right? We, we don't know what happened. And to, like Jeff said, having this knee-jerk reaction uh, based on your preconceived agenda is disingenuous. And, and I think these are the instances that have exposed, again, the, the fractures on the left, not only political fractures, but also ideological ones. Because when we get into this tit-for-tat um, preconceived uh, agendas, what we are losing is sort of a grounding ideology that used to, in a way, make the left more cohesive. Um, and now what we have is just this, the Twitter left, which is, there's no left at all. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, in, it, it exists in the, the mind of people like Zuckerberg and not on the ground. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's right. And, and the question to me, at least partially, it, that always sort of comes to my mind is, so who even is the left? Because, you know, a lot of people are claiming it and yet demonstrating none of the qualities that I think represent what the left is about. For instance, I mean, you have like, you know, the, the, the online blog equivalent of court jesters like Caitlin Johnstone and others who are immediately publishing articles that are shared tens of thousands of times about how, oh, okay, A, Assad didn't do this, and B, make sure you work with fascists to stop a war. Like, what? <laughs> Yeah, guess what? That gets a hell of a lot of traction, right? And that's what's so unfortunate. Uh, it, it, it's, and, and any real true journalism that might be happening on the ground, and we've seen it time and time again in Syria especially, uh, that might counter the narrative that these other folks or whoever don't agree with, they totally dismiss it outright. Right. And, and again, it's the same thing when we're talking about UN resolutions. If the UN goes in and says something happened, uh, we're, we're the first to say, oh, we'll use the U.N. resolutions, for example, when defending Palestinian rights. Oh, but we're not going to use the U.N.'s justifications if they've gone in and uh, criticized Assad for using barrel bombs and dropping chemicals, right? Uh, that, that we don't agree with. We're only going to agree with the ones and the reports that fit our agenda. And I think that's very disingenuous as well, and it makes the left seem uh, you know, pretty phony. Absolutely. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm very skeptical about narratives that come out about Syria, including the narrative that instantly ascribes blame to the Syrian government, because I think it's a very, very complex conflict with many different actors, with overlapping, sometimes convergent, sometimes divergent interests. So I certainly uh, agree that one should be skeptical either way. The problem I have is in the way that all of this is framed and the sort of sanctimony around 
around it, right? That if you have a position that's even slightly different from the orthodox position of one camp or the other, that makes you the enemy, you're part of the problem, and you're basically an imperialist, and you're essentially single-handedly responsible for World War III. <laughs> but, but the thing that's amusing about all of this, um, and it gets back to whether, you know, there is, there is a left as a political force, is that there's an illusion that the number of shares and retweets that you get, you know, uh, have anything to do with, you know, the political influence that you have, because they couldn't get a, a tenth of those people, you know, out onto the street, you know, to protest, you know, Saudi bombing in Yemen. Yeah, it is, well, it's yeah. an illusory force. So. Uh, Jeff and I sort of revealed to each other one <laughs> years ago. We were in—I uh, won't say where. We were in—we were in a, in a, a nice-sized Midwest city at an event. Um, Josh, we... please, please, please keep it clean. Go ahead. <laughs> and it was a event put on by a socialist organization. There was thousands—I I would say, fifteen hundred to two thousand people there at the time. Uh, across the street at a separate convention center building was a uh, conference or a something going on with the border patrol agents. They were recruiting Me potential agents. Recruiting potential agents. Jeff was giving a talk and trying to rouse the audience to get out of their seats, go across the fucking street, and cause mayhem. Protest. Do something. Do something that makes an impact. Everybody just looked flustered, looked at each other with confusion. That, that's not what we do. We, we, all we do is we sit here in the seat and we just agree with the speakers and whatever, whatever they say, but no, you're going to tell us to go across the street and actually do something? That's not, that's not what we do. We're not, we're not that kind of activist. And I mean, the historical that's a, that's moment a, wasn't right. Right. Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting because, you know, on the one hand, I understand where you're coming from. On the other hand, I'm I'm a little reticent to leave the front lines of the great Syrian meme war of 2017. <laughs> but I think, well, I mean, my point is, this is not a new thing, right? It's only been exacerbated by the personalities of the left that have been amplified on places and platforms like Twitter. And also, a lot of those same people have been amplified and are being used, I would argue, by outlets like RT and Sputnik and a lot of other ones. Um, and it's not to say that all of them are being disingenuous um, or being manipulated, but uh, they're definitely being used. And I think that when we, when we focus on the personalities and, and we lose the actual politics that we should be addressing instead, um, and then... I, I, you know, and this is not a new thing. I just, again, I think it's just been amplified. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I guess let's let's jump to a break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about this whole Russian bot thing that went down with Counterpunch, because that's exciting and sexy. And uh, then I want to also discuss a little bit about uh, those loathsome orcs that we call Democrats and uh, what they're doing. And then let's bring up everyone's favorite uh, Billy Jeff Clinton uh, to round out to round out the show. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Josh Frank and Jeff Sinclair. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for downloading, streaming, doing what it is that you do and supporting this work and supporting Counterpunch. It's so greatly appreciated. I can't tell you how gratifying it is to, uh, you know, get emails or to have emails forwarded to me from uh, the Counterpunch team about, you know, how people like the show and, uh, you know, giving criticism, which is always welcome and uh, giving verbal abuse, which is slightly less welcome, but also readable. And, uh, you know, I want to thank everybody for continuing to uh, listen to the show and hopefully we'll have 100, 200, 500 more episodes uh, in the future. Um, But anyway, uh, so let's pick up the conversation on this issue of Russian bots, right? Because this story... I I find to be pretty tedious, frankly, uh, you know, in general, right? This idea that, you know, the Internet Research Agency in Russia was single-handedly responsible for Trump is, of course, insane, considering what we know about Cambridge Analytica and the data mining and all of the different strategies that were employed. At the same time, there's a whole segment of the left that isn't willing to even discuss the issue of how Russians uh, have quite successfully learned to manipulate and to tweak social media to their own political advantage, just as the United States and the U.S. military and U.S. intelligence has been doing from the very beginning of social media. And Counterpunch had uh, somewhat recently had its own little, uh, well, as Jeff called it, a close encounter of the Russian bot kind. Uh, So, Jeff, give us a little bit of this story for people who maybe missed the articles on this and don't know the backstory. What happened And how did this sort of come to your attention and how did you feel as you sort of unraveled the many layers of the story? Well, it was back in November, I guess. Uh, I got a call from Adam Intus, um, who at the time was investigative reporter with the Washington Post. He'd broken a lot of the the Russia stories over the past two years. He's now at the New Yorker. He's been um, swept away by uh, Remnick, um, the awful Remnick. They brought him up from AAA to the majors. (laughs) (laughs) And he hasn't been heard from since. Actually, he did write, you know, one very good uh, long piece on on Jared Kushner. Um, But, uh, um, yeah, I got to have to put out an amber alert for him. So uh, Intus called me and he said, um, hey, look. I've got a question about one of your uh, one of your writers. I said okay, um, and he said, uh, "Yeah, it's a writer named Alice Donovan," and the name did not ring a bell. Um, and then it, it sort of there was a sort of distant ringing in the rapidly eroding recesses of my brain. Um, but it turned out that I was thinking of, of a different writer, uh, named Alice. So I was completely off, but anyway, he said, you know, I, I've come across this document from the FBI, uh, which, uh, alleges that Alice Donovan is a fake persona with links to Russian intelligence and, it referred to a piece that she, in quotation marks, uh, had written on cyber warfare. And he said it, that he just put in a Google search and discovered that that piece uh, had been published by Counterpunch. 
And he said, what did I think about that? And I kind of, uh, you know, the, the hairs on the back of my neck, I guess, sort of, you know, rose a little bit. And I said, well, for, for listeners, what... for listeners, just so everybody knows, Jeff has a very hairy neck. I do. Have <laughs> it. <laughs> All the remaining hairs on my head are down on my neck. <laughs> so I said, well, look, I, I don't I don't really know what to say about it. I don't remember the story. And, uh, you know, the writer's name isn't familiar with me. You know, we've published 9,000 different writers. So um, I said, I'll get back to you. It goes fine, you know. Um, and so I did. You know, I immediately uh, discovered that uh, we had indeed published that piece. Um, and we'd published, I think, five other stories over a course of a year and a half. And um, none of them stuck out. I, I didn't really remember any of them. The, I, the last one I do remember, which was a piece that uh, she had written, I think we'd published it in October on the U.S. using uh, Colombia to undermine the Maduro regime in Venezuela. You know, perfectly sensible piece. But uh, given the allegations, you know, that had been uh, lodged against us, it was, uh, you know, troubling. Who is this person? So I immediately sent uh, Alice Donovan a, an email um, after having read the, the six pieces that she'd written saying, you know, <laughs> please give me a call. I, you know, I need to talk to you about, about this. And uh, didn't hear anything back for a couple of weeks. We had had some minor communications back and forth over the stories, but, you know, basically, like, I got your story, you know, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll be running it in a couple of days um, or, or not running it. I think we had received maybe 25 submissions from her. Um, she had a Gmail account and uh, a different account, which Josh helped track down the significance of, uh, just a mail.com account that has some significance, I think. Um, but maybe we'd gotten 25 emails, 25 submissions from her. Uh, we ended up running six, I think, over a year and a half. None of these stories, by the way, mentioned Trump, Hillary, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, or the 2016 election. Um, there were we ran the cyber war story and then nothing else for a while. Then we ran, I think, three really short pieces on Syria and then the piece on Venezuela. And they were, I went back and sort of looked at the syntax and they weren't, you know, it wasn't Alec Alexander Coburn's writing, but they weren't, didn't seem like Google translations of, uh, of Russian to me. But it did begin to uh, get under my, our skin that she hadn't um, returned our email, hadn't called us. And I, you know, sent her a couple more emails saying, look, you know, we really need to talk to you because there have been some allegations made about your work. 
Then in digging a little bit deeper, we found that she had published uh, not just in Counterpunch, but in uh, maybe like 12 or 13 other publications, um, some on the left, some on what you would call, I guess, the alt-right, um, some in just kind of wacko sites uh, like Veterans Today, if you know them. Oh, I do. Oh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <I do. laughs> I'm not they're the ones. They're the ones who... and, you know, and read it. But uh, uh, yeah, so th they were in fact uh, the first place uh, where she debuted um, and ran most of her submissions. I think for close to a two-year period. One of the things that we, we discovered is that uh, Alice Donovan had plagiarized uh, other writers. Um, one of the pieces that we ran was plagiarized <laughs> by another sort of dubious writer uh, named Sophie Mangel, um, who uh, is an editor writer at a site called the Syrian Media Center, um, which we did an, a, a long expose on a few weeks after our Alice Donovan stories. Um, so it did seem like, you know, this was uh, a dubious journalist. Um, we found her, and she, is, she's still there actually on Twitter, her Twitter page, where she claimed to be a New York resident. There's a, um, a very sultry photograph of her um, lying on a bed, um, blonde hair, um, looking at her cell phone. Um, we tried to reach her through the Twitter account. Um, she didn't reply either. And then uh, I stumbled across a New York Times piece that had been written in September, I believe, which referred to an Alice Donovan as a suspected Russian bot on Facebook, and that she had been deleted from Facebook, I think, by Facebook after uh, the New York Times had let them know that they had been probing in to these uh, fake Russian accounts. And that was a bummer to read that, frankly, <laughs> because it, it seemed to suggest that, uh, that it, the Entus memo uh, had some credibility to it. Right. Now, uh, if I remember correctly, though, that's kind of where the story really starts to get interesting, almost, you know, like the layers of an onion, as it were. So it seems like every new discovery that uh, Counterpunch made about this really kind of opened up a whole new uh, set of questions. So, Josh, can you tell us a little bit about what happened once you realized what Alice Donovan was? What happened when you confronted uh, Sophie about, you know, all of this and give us a little bit of the flavor of the kind of investigation that you did, because frankly, I, I think that 
the investigation that Counterpunch did revealed more about what the, you know, at least some of the tactics that Russian, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, social media influence and intelligence, whatever, has been involved in even more so than anything we hear from the corporate media. So, Josh, give us a little bit of background on your investigation and what happened once you peeled back the Alice Donovan layer. Well, one thing I think we should make clear, though, is that we, Jeff and I have never seen this purported FBI document that named Alice Donovan as a Russian troll. Um, so we have no way to verify who was funding her. That's, you know, and as a journalist, that's actually what we're just, that was speculative. Um, but what we do know is that she was not real. Um, we know for a fact that she's a plagiarist. And in, in uncovering her plagiarism, we did stumble across this Sophie Mangle character. Well, we ended up going back through our submissions. And as Jeff mentioned, we've published thousands and thousands of writers. So we, our, our inbox every morning is full. Um, but fortunately, I uh, was able to track down um, a whole bunch of submissions from this Sophie Mangle character. Well, Sophie Mangle has been submitting to us for or was up until this point for at least a year and a half, I believe. Um, and on a, a very curiously, it, she didn't submit the article that was plagiarized to us. She had submitted, as far as we could tell, every previous to that, everything she had ever written. So it was very curious. All of a sudden, she doesn't submit the article that was plagiarized, but instead that article is submitted to us under the byline of Alice Donovan. So very, very curious that that happened. Um, and in fact, uh, going back, we found that the article um, that we published by Alice Donovan was only published, I believe, that morning before, or about the same time the email went out to us under a different site under the name Sophie Mangle. So all of a sudden, we're like, okay, what's going on here? Uh, we try to reach out to Sophie Mangle. She responds to us um, in a pretty weird sort of, uh, oh, I can't talk to you. Um, I'm in Syria. Um, we're like, well, that's fine. Um, can you just basically, can you just prove that you're a real person? Which isn't really all that difficult to do. All that we could find of her was this obscure Facebook account, which it was soon after deleted. Um, she had a she didn't, I don't believe she had a Twitter account. She may have. Um, now we, we tried then to contact, and this is someone, by the way, as Jeff mentioned, that is an alleged editor of a publication called Inside Syria Media Center, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, generally putting out six to eight stories a day, um, which seem to be things that are embedded or from reporters or somebody that's embedded with the uh, the Russian military or the Syrian military in Syria. So they're very prolific. Um, so you would think that they would want to respond to a request for an interview. Um, as, as, as you know, it's very hard to be a journalist in the age of the internet and not have a pretty open online persona. Uh, there has been no interviews with her on any podcast or any you know uh, radio interviews that we could find. Um, she had not, she, she basically was a ghost. Um, 
Well, there's no there's no such thing as an uh, independent journalist in 2018 that doesn't have a vast online presence. It's just it does not exist. You can't be doing you can't be doing this sort of work and not have uh, relatively easy to find social media footprint, even if it's just on a personal level, let alone the professional side. Well, and that was probably I think I believe, you know, these are the red flags. And we started seeing what we saw with Alice Donovan. Um, of this sort of fake persona. We saw a lot of parallels with Sophie Mangle. Well, then we started digging into the Inside Syria Media Center um, and realizing that pretty much every one of their alleged writers uh, was a plagiarizer themselves. Um, they were stealing stuff. And it, meanwhile, however, they were running stuff all over the web on sites like Veterans Today, Global Research. Their output is rather prolific. Um, and I would say... Uh, agenda-oriented to have a pro-Bashar al-Assad uh, point of view in, in on Syria. Um, now, one can wager, well, who's funding this? What's going on? This is in English, um, and they're being rather prolific with their content output. Um, and so basically, we just, we exposed them as a, a mill. Now, we couldn't prove that this was coming from Kremlin money or, or whoever is actually behind it. But what we could prove is that it's a completely pro- pro- complete propaganda operation. Um, and we believe that um, so if, or, uh, Alice Donovan may have had some kind of connections to that same web. Now, that web, as we know, is pretty vast. It's complex. It's like a layer of an onion. It doesn't really make sense. Um, but this, I think, was a pretty good example of how um, the Internet can be used to put forth uh, a point of view that ends up then becoming news down the road on left-wing sites. Because we have a lot of writers then that go to these places. We, we had examples of articles, for instance, that had been run initially on Inside Syria Media Center come out through them through their channels, and the next thing you know, it's popping up on RT and Sputnik, and then then, then the next thing you know, it's being quoted by left-wing journalists as fact. As fact. Um, and when you trace this back to some of these outlets that are pretty spurious, um, you find that uh, there's, uh, there's an agenda that's going on, and it's actually impacting the news and the information that people on the left are getting on certain issues. So I think ultimately that's what we unraveled, and at least in part, um, but there was a lot more investigation that could be done. But I think by the end of it, Jeff and I were developing pretty heavy drinking habits, so we had to back off. Well, I, I, I would, I would argue that you're both cowards. Um, but, be, but be that as be that as it may, um, no doubt about that, Jeff. Jeff, one of the really. Um, I want to say funny, but in a really sad kind of funny way uh, that, that that came out of this for me was in reading through some of the comments that, that came up on the Counterpunch uh, Facebook page after you guys published this expose, uh, one that stuck out in my mind that's just, I mean, it would be comedy gold if it wasn't genuine, uh, but it is. And, and that was uh, somebody wrote, well, well, I mean, so what? These people are fake. The stuff is the the, the facts are real. Exactly. I, 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 I mean, I, I, mean I, I almost was at a loss for. I'm still at a loss for words for the unbelievable stupidity of a statement like well, that. Well, and, and Eric, Eric, they're still 
putting out content and it's still being run all over these quote unquote left sites like global research there that's what's so astounding to me i i mean i would imagine i thought that our expose would derail the whole operation at least make people skeptical but they're still out there doing the same the same thing um, at the and, and and the remarkable thing is that you know, so it's one thing, you know, people write under pseudonyms, you know, all the time, you know, and we dealt with that uh, in the, our piece on Alice Donovan. Um, but, you know, plagiarism violates, you know, the, the, the prime directive of, of journalism and, and writing. I mean, if you care about writing and, and reading, for that matter, you would think. Um, and we expose dozens and dozens of pieces of uh, as being completely ripped off, it ripped off other writers. And dozens of sites on the left and on the right printed those stories. And after the expose that these were fraudulent stories, kept them up. And that that's just, you know, so it's not only that the, you know, inside Syria Media Center, you know, goes on, you know, this juggernaut that's just impervious. But it's also, you know, these these left-wing, you know, websites, which are equally <laughs> impervious to the fact and simply, I, I guess, just don't care um, that they've published stories which are fraudulent. At, well, at that's a basic uh, level. I mean, that's that, exactly it. Stunning. That's exactly it. They don't care. And and what what matters is the content, not the validity or veracity of the content, but the content itself. It's almost like, you know, some kind of weird postmodern, you know, art installation where it's, you know, it's not the information, it's the object. And, you know and what it's I not mean? even that, that, you know, is it is it factual or not? I, you know, I, I, I think it's, it it tells people what what they expect to hear, what they want to hear. It's comforting to them, and uh, you know, to have to examine that 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 kind of uh, addiction, I guess, uh, I guess would be troubling for for readers and you know maybe publishers too. But you uh, see, once again, when you get into this position, you find yourself being attacked solely by virtue of conducting an investigation into something, you know, by virtue of, uh, you know, why would Counterpunch do this at this critical juncture in which Counterpunch will be single-handedly responsible for commencing World War III? Why would you guys do this? It's so, it's so dangerous. Well, you know, and I think, you know, we addressed this in our piece on Sophie Mangle. We, we're journalists and we wanted to unravel the truth of, and, that is a dangerous thing because if you already have an idea of what that truth is and it's counter to that, yeah, you, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but Jeff and I did. And we found things that we weren't ready to find, perhaps. Uh, we had to put our own practices under a microscope um, and admit where, where we messed up. Um, but I think Counterpunch is better off for it. And our readers, I mean, ultimately, I believe we owe it to our readers to, at the very least, know the, the people that we're publishing, at least to know that they exist as actual people. Um, there's obviously varying opinions out there um, on all kinds of issues that we run on Counterpunch, but at least we know the person behind that point of view. 
Um, and so we owe that to our readers. And when we were going all along this investigation and we found that, um, and I should mention, we never ran any of Sophie Mangle's pieces, thank goodness. Um, but we owe it to our readers to, to publish actual people. Um, Except the one that appeared under Alice Donovan's byline. Right. So does that mean that this is why you guys are now asking me for urine samples with all of my articles? <laughs> Only DNA swabs for, for people like you. Oh, okay, good. I but thought you guys were was also, I mean, we were burned. You know, we were burned by, by one of our writers. And, you know, you're, you're pissed off at that. You know, first I was pissed off at the Washington Post and, and the FBI and, you know, uh, and and then myself. But, you know, ultimately I was, you know, pissed off at the fact that, you know, one of our writers had uh, had burned us. And and then it became fun because, you you know, you apply the you know, the limited skill set I have of, you know, of doing, you know, research, you know, you're on a trail and you want to see, you know, where it goes. And, you know, there were some you know, ugly detours that it, that it took. And as, as Josh said, you know, a lot of them sort of, you know, uh, switch back, you know, to us and decisions that we had made. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there's, there's the scent of the hunt, you know, which I, I think all journalists, you know, sort of, you know, um, enjoy, you know, even if it's in this case that, you know, involved a lot of, uh, self-inspection um yeah it seems like there's something somewhat cathartic i guess about all of this and so i guess the last question on this subject before we move on to more uh well fun or depressing depending on how you want to look at it issues um how has discovering this whole for lack of a better word catfishing scheme against counterpunch how has this uh you know changed any perspectives that you guys might have about submissions about how you run things how you evaluate things has it changed it at all uh i guess that's the first question and then the second question i mean did this did this sort of close encounter with the with this uh vast network or whatever did this kind of um become a moment of realization about some of the larger forces that are at play in the alternative media online world in which counterpunch exists. <laughs> Either one, anytime. Well, I, you know, I think what it did do on a very basic level is new submissions to counterpunch. Uh, we are now at least going through a pretty basic screening of these people to make sure that they're real. Um, and obviously there's red flags. If you're a real person, it's pretty easy to find out if you're a real person. Uh, so that on a very basic level, that's that's our first line. Um, and fortunately, we haven't unfound anybody that wasn't <laughs> a, a genuine actual person. Um, but on a broader level, I think it also kind of um, sort of made us interested in, well, who who other who other people maybe that are on the left, maybe people that we haven't written or run that haven't written for counterpunch. Um, who's who's funding them? Where are these sites being funded from? Where who who's behind Insight Syria Media Center? When you start thinking about these things, you realize um, well not only how genuine counterpunch is because we're we're completely independent, but how perhaps disingenuous a lot of these other sites are because they aren't actual news sites. Um, and so I think that that's definitely um, 
maybe, I don't know if it's changed our perspective per se, but I think it's made us more aware of, of the, the game we're in and the internet age is much different than it was even 10 years ago. Um, and whether or not it's going to get worse or better, I have no idea, but I think we're going to stand our ground and do the best we can to vet our writers and to be as honest and open as we can with our readers. It's also a kind of treacherous ground, Eric, because especially for us, because Counterpunch has always been, you know, kind of, I mean, we've always wanted to be open to a wide spectrum of voices and not just run journalists. You know, we run activists, we run homeless people, we run prisoners, um, we run indigenous people, uh, we even occasionally run lawyers, you know, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, we don't want to be too snake bitten um, that we're, you know, from now on, we're only going to run accredited journalists, you know, God forbid, who would want to read that? Um, so we want to continue to run act and, and run people from all over the world. I mean, I think that's, you know, uh, that's kind of a trademark of, of counterpunch. So you don't know, you know, you're going to have somebody from Iceland and, you know, South Africa and, Mumbai on any given day. Um, and, you know, we, we want to sort of keep that, you know, diverse, rich palette of voices on Counterpunch. Um, on the other hand, we don't want to be running pieces written by intelligence agencies or propaganda mills, whether they're, you know, the CIA or, you know, the Russians or the Syrians or the Israelis. And uh, I do think that this, you know, close encounter has reminded us of those truths. I mean, you know, look, Alex and I, you know, wrote an entire book on how, you know, the CIA has you know, infiltrated and, and manipulated um, the global media. So it's, it's, you know, we knew they were out there, but, and this was, uh, uh, a really sharp reminder of, I think, just how easily, you know, online media uh, can be penetrated by those kind of forces. Indeed. I, I, you know, when I, when I heard about it, when I read the stories, I thought, wow, this is really kind of, on the one hand, you know, I, I could, you know, you could see it as somewhat depressing, you know, in a sense, but on the other hand, it was really kind of exciting because it, it almost was, you know, a little bit of meat on the bone that is this ongoing Russiagate saga because, you know, Counterpunch is a place that I, you know, inhabit in my own way and that a lot of people I know inhabit. So it was almost like, you know, the, you know, the, the, the baseball game and the foul ball came right to us, you know, and that was kind of really interesting. And I thought that, um, I thought that you guys handled it really well. So I want to give you guys credit for that and I also think that uh, if it didn't if it wasn't a wake-up call for a lot of people I think it at least certainly changed the conversation a bit this is now something that we can point to and say look this isn't some wild conspiracy theory you know that was concocted by the deep state this is real shit that's actually happening to a news outlet that we all know and treasure right um, yeah, well, I mean, we felt a little bit hurt. You know, why would they target us? <laughs> why do they? Why would the Russians want to want to drag us through the mud? You know, but uh, you know, there you go. Um, All right, so welcome to the big uh, leagues. 
Uh, this is this is quickly turning into a baseball themed episode. I'm enjoying this. All right. Um, so uh, with the time we have remaining, I wanna I wanna just uh, shift gears a bit. Um, so. You know, we've all seen, you know, bad action movies, whatever, right? And there's usually, you know, an, an, or a heist movie. And there's, like, always, you know, these archetypal characters, right? One of them is sort of the kind of shook up and trembling, scared one. And then one turns out to be, like, the sadistic murderer, right? So they go in, they go in to steal, right? And then one of them pulls off his ski mask and shoots three, you know, people standing there for no good reason. The other one is scared and he drives the car and they drive away. So what I'm saying is that I think Donald Trump is like the sadistic murderer and the Democrats are his accomplices. Because if you watch the way that this is all playing out, I mean, the so-called resistance, forget the resistance. These people are accomplices to Donald Trump. I mean, Jeff, you've talked about this a bunch of times, how it's not simply the right wing that is the problem. It's the fact that the neoliberal center is in many ways an element of the right wing. Can you talk a little bit about these Democrat bastards and how they're enabling Donald Trump. <laughs> well, I, and by the way, that was a question. That was. A question. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, uh, I, for some reason, when you, when you talked about wearing masks, I, I, I saw, you know, Joe Biden, uh, be revealed there, uh, underneath one of them. Um, just incredible to me that I mean we talk about uh, even the the sort of uh, the foundations of the so-called resistance you know maybe they're the three corners of their of their movements you know one of them you know sort of hopping on to this me too movement which I guess Biden's now trying to get uh, out in front of I mean this is a guy who had a notorious reputation you know while he was in the Senate for hitting on staffers female staffers um, and who essentially put Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court by shutting down the Anita Hill investigation. Um, just unappetizing in every way, but a total tool of the economic elite in this country um, who has carried their water at uh, every turn and continues to. And there's, they have, the party itself has never renounced any of its allegiances to Wall Street. They've just embraced them, full, doing the full frontal embrace now. Um, and it's, I think, one of the most appalling things of the Trump era is that um, even though Hillary Clinton was defeated, thank God, um, what we know is Clintonism still remains the guiding ideology of the Democratic Party. And there's no resist. I don't see any resistance to that. Um, you know, you have Bernie running, you know, a few of his... Uh, revolution candidates and uh you have the dnc trying to uh you know squash them out wherever they pop up and with quite a bit of success it seems to me 
Josh, um, I, I just want to ask you, especially, you know, since you have such a long background, uh, both in terms of uh, activism, but also in terms of journalistic work, uh, background in environmental issues and climate change related issues and such. I, what we're witnessing under the Trump administration, particularly with regard to those issues, I, I think is rather predictable. I mean, Trump didn't make any secret about the fact that he, uh, you know, he he has every intention of waging war on Mother Nature. But it is the fact that if you watch these so-called resistance Democrats, I mean, it seems to me that they just enable this at every turn. Well, and, and they don't just do that now, but they have been doing it. Um, and, and I just wrote a piece recently on the continued oil boom um, and how under Obama, uh, you know, regulations were jettisoned and uh, offshore drilling was expanded, fracking boomed. We became a net exporter of natural gas and oil for the first time in decades. Um, and here we have Trump just doing and basically steamrolling that into even a bigger issue um, and doing it overtly. Um, but the Democrats aren't going to stop it. Um, they didn't stop Obama from doing it. They're not going to stop Trump from doing it. So here in California, Jerry Brown, he can talk tough all he wants, but he's, an, he's completely supported by the oil industry in California. Um, he's not going to stop it. In fact, he probably supports it in many ways. So it's an example of this so-called resistance not failing us, but not doing anything other than pretending to work for us. Uh, I don't know if even that makes sense, but we have now we have Trump completely eviscerating the EPA, um, and there's good people that work at the EPA. Um, in, in, environmentalists have long opposed the EPA on, on many things, but there are a lot of good people working for the EPA and the EPA and is our last sort of regulatory um, safeguard for for toxins in, in poor communities, uh, for regular for holding these some of these account uh, companies accountable for drilling, for spilling. Um, but we have the Democrats, saying, well, yeah, this is just kind of what we expected to have happen. And instead of standing up to Trump, um, they're, they're catering to the same industries that have bought and sold the Republican Party because they've also bought and sold the Democrats as well. So we're just seeing a continuation of something that's been going on for a very long time. And now we're just seeing it on steroids, which is pretty frightening. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. But I there's almost a in my mind, an, an, an even worse sin in all of this on the part of the Democrats, and that is that many of them are cynically uh, uh, kind of standing out, you know, away from this and, and getting out of the way because they think that this is going to be the key to Democrats winning in 2018 and in 2020. Like, let this, let this, let this fool embarrass himself, and we'll we'll win back our power or whatever. Which is, of course, I mean, aside from you know, unbelievably uh, stupid, it's also incredibly. Um, uh, Cynical, I guess, is the only word I can think of. And, you know, I, I agree with you to a large extent, Josh, obviously, about Obama. I also wrote about Obama, you know, all of the above energy policy and his catering to the oil companies and fracking and all of the rest of that. But I mean, it, 
at least Obama had some degree of shame in, in putting in place things like emissions regulations and emission standards and, you know, certain other certain other things that, that were put in place that have all been rolled back by Trump. One of the things, Jeff, that I find most insidious about Trump is the fact that he's in many ways presiding over the evisceration of a lot of these agencies that, although maybe at the top or corrupt, do a bunch of good work. I mean, I think, Jeff, I think you shared something on Facebook last week or two weeks ago about uh, new diseases that are that are breaking out in, in record numbers. And at the same time, the CDC is being totally eviscerated and defunded by the Trump administration. I mean, this shit's dangerous. Yeah. And and this is where I think the real breakdown in uh, in Congress is taking place, because, you know, it's what Bannon was explicit about his goal of wanting to destroy the administrative state. And, you know, obviously the the EPA is a regulatory agency which bit into capital's bottom line. And uh, it's been a target, uh, you know, since the late 70s, really, when, when, uh, when industry began to see what all of these environmental regulations that had largely been passed during the Nixon administration, um, our greatest uh, environmental president. But it was, but but, uh, starting in like, you know, 78 or so, you begin to see the, this, uh, the rise of the deregulationist. And a lot of them actually came out of uh, Ted Kennedy's office in the form of Stephen Breyer, uh, a Supreme Court justice now, who was then a, a top staffer for Kennedy. And it was like, well, you know, we need to like, you know, ease, ease the bite out of, out of some of these, uh, these regulations because, you know, they're, they're hurting the trucking industry. They're hurting, you know, the airline industry. Um, and it, it really didn't begin to take root until, you know, sort of Clinton time. And now it's just, uh, these agencies are being completely gutted. I mean, you know, since Clinton time, they were sort of in a, have been in a state of uh, suspended animation, I guess. Their budgets have, you know, have been capped. The a lot, you know, few regula- new regulations have been uh, imposed. Um, but you know, now with with Trump in power and people like Scott Pruitt, uh, they are not just obliterating a lot of these executive orders that uh, Obama threw in at the end of his first term and then at the end of the second term. That's really easy to do. More importantly, as you suggest, they are rooting out um, really good regulators. They're gutting these agencies from the inside out. Uh, They're scientists, um, you know, they're frontline um, bureaucrats and officers, they're just being sent out and they're, you know, they're, they're being exiled, uh, and many of them are, are quitting because, uh, they, they can't tolerate this sort of stifling, hostile environment. And these, you're not going to be able to rebuild these agencies, I don't think. Um, and we're really going to, uh, we're really going to see just how devastating that that has been in the next five, 10 years. 
We see, you know, story after story about new diseases. And at that very moment, the CDC is being defunded and gutted. We see record wildfires in the, you know, in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. At the same time, the Trump administration, A, denies climate change and B, moves to gut every uh, agency that would have any, you know, expertise on, on, on what to do, how to, how to sort of rebuild some of the forests and so forth. You The same you, you see with the NOAA, the, the National. Uh, whatever atmospheric association, um, you know, all of the focusing on climate change, all of these different agencies that are being gutted. And this is really where I find this whole obsession with uh, World War Three narratives and obsession with either vindicating Putin or implicating Putin or vindicating Trump or implicating the deep state or all of this constant back and forth about all of this. While while all of this real shit is happening, it's infuriating, Josh. Yes, it is. Um, and, but that is, again, I think it goes back to how the left has lost its politics, whether it's class politics or its politics standing up for the environment and for the people that are being uh, are the victims of capitalism, which is definitely an environmental issue. I mean, not 10 miles from where I live, uh, is one of the most polluted neighborhoods in all of the of California, which puts it at the top of one of the most polluted areas in the in the country, if not the world. And this is the city of Wilmington. Um, there's people. I think the the asthma rate is above 75% if you're under 12 years old. We have very real issues happening in our own backyards, but instead of working to address these issues, uh, curbing pollution. Um, working to move toward more renewable resources and, and energy production, we are instead talking about the deep state and Putin. And I think that that to me is, again, I agree with you, it's, it's really fucking frustrating um, because the people that are actually on the ground doing good work and working really hard on getting the recognition they deserve um, because we are now uh, faced with this inept left that was more uh, concerned with how many retweets and how many arguments they get on on Twitter. Um, and that, that, that I think, um, uh, perhaps is an ominous sign for us. Uh, maybe it's an omen, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think Counterpunch is here to try to reverse that course as best we can. Absolutely. Um, Jeff, you mentioned something. Uh, I don't remember if you mentioned it to me privately or if it was on Facebook or whatever, but it was actually, I thought, a pretty brilliant observation, which indeed you are capable of. Um, and that is that Trump is in, in many ways not really that much like Obama or even George W. Bush but rather that Trump is very much like Bill Clinton. And Democrats who posture like Trump is the modern-day Mephistopheles seem to forget that many of the things that they're attacking Trump for, Billy Jeff really paved the way for, didn't he? Uh, he did. I mean, I, I think Clinton was perhaps a little bit uh, more skilled verbally, but he, was, he, exploits, he exploited his base... Uh, with the same sort of deafness that 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 Trump has been able to exploit his when they're both working out the same agenda for uh, Goldman Sachs in terms of their economics. Um, their personal lives are very, very similar. <laughs> and the way that they have defended themselves against attack, uh, 
I think Trump is playing right from uh, from Clinton's playbook. Um, and maybe Trump's defenders are, uh, 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 well, he has his own television network, <laughs> which uh, Clinton was only beginning to get his with uh, MSN, in MSDNC, as I call them. Um, so that makes it a, a little bit different. But yeah, I think that they're both, uh, they're both con artists. <laughs> <laughs> operating at a uh, at a very uh, high octane level. They're both con artists. They're both uh, employing in very high level positions people who openly advocate genocide, whether it's like a John Bolton or a Madeleine Albright, you know, depending on your flavor of genocidaires. Um, and both of them have not only multiple sex scandals that they're involved in, but both of them have repeatedly attacked and victimized, you know, the victims and demonized the victims. Both of them are, are using military strikes in the Middle East as a deflective uh, tactic away from their ongoing uh, sagas and conspiracies. Sure. I mean, the parallels, they don't, they don't stop there. No, they don't. And, uh, you know, and and we see the same sort of ritual of of the way they've been able to e exploit the opposition. You know, um, it's and and we're getting nowhere. You know, I mean, uh, I was all for the impeachment of Clinton, and it was one of the things that divided Coburn and I. Uh, I mean, I, I generally think that all presidents, you know, should be impeached, and. Usually they have you have grounds for impeachment, you know, within the first week. I mean, I think Trump launched his uh, uh, his he had his first war crime within a week, didn't he? In uh, in Yemen, uh, with a with a they call it botched raids. I don't think there was anything botched about it. It's what they do. They go in and they kill women and children, and and uh, um, he bragged about it during the campaign. Um, so, but I thought. You know, and and then go impeach them for the most trivial thing. I think that's I think Clinton deserved to be impeached for uh, you know, lying about sex with Monica, and you know Trump deserves to go down for uh, Stormy Daniels. I, I hope it, I hope she takes him down. Operation Stormy Desert. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I find it really kind of uh, irritating when people say, oh, what, so you want Mike Pence? I'm like, no, fucking impeach him too. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Then like, you move go, on go after every, every single one of them. You know, Paul Ryan's already out of the way. Uh, I don't I don't know who's next. Gandalf or whoever, you know, whoever they have in the succession line. Um, you know, the only thing is that Trump hasn't yet had enough uh, – close confidants wind up mysteriously dead. Although I, I was hoping that Scaramucci's corpse would be found in a park in Washington. What do you think, Josh? <laughs> well, I'll just be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you said it, not me. All right. I guess we'll probably have to leave it there. Uh, we're well over the time as if I've been following the time, which I haven't. But um, final question, Jeff, can I come over to your bunker? <laughs> there's room down here but it's you know it's getting wetter and wetter and it's got a wet dog smell to it do you like dogs <laughs> Uh, I will I will suffer through it if it means you're gonna hold me during the apocalypse <laughs> Josh 
you don't have a basement, so fuck you. Um, <laughs> anyway, listeners, thank you as always. This was fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. I really enjoyed doing this podcast. I'm sorry it's been a little spotty the last couple of months. Things have been crazy, but I'm working on getting it back on track. I think that uh, next week we're going to have an in-depth uh, look at what's going on in Brazil. Lots going on there that needs to be addressed and understood. Jeff Sinclair, editor of Counterpunch, Joshua Frank, managing editor of Counterpunch. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, guys. Thanks, Thank Eric. And congratulations on turning 100. Thank you so much. Here's to another 100 years from your lips to. Uh, Stormy's ears. Uh, listeners, thank you as always. Talk to you again real soon. <laughs>